Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its implications on our relationships, our markets, and our futures. I'm Siobhan. I'm Bianca. And we'll be hosting you in this series. Today, we are honoured to be joined by Professors Rachel Taylor and Shazia Chowdhury speaking to us on family law. Rachel is an Associate Professor at Oxford University and a Fellow-in-Law at Exeter College, where she works in the areas of children's rights, family law, and constitutional law. She has written widely on children's rights, including topics such as medical decision-making, parental responsibility, children's rights in public policy, and children's upbringing in minority cultures. Her most recent works include forthcoming books on children's rights and the developing law, and as a joint author of Bromley's Family Law. Shazia is Professor of Law at Queen Mary University and is currently a visiting professor at the Faculty of Law at Oxford University. Her research interests lie in the fields of European and UK human rights law, in particular the interface of those fields with substantive areas of family law. She has also written extensively on the topic of violence against women as a human rights issue and the effect of rights-based reasoning in the law relating to children. She has published three books to wide acclaim. Rachel and Shazia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. To start us off with quite a foundational question, what is family law? It's a foundational question, but it's it's actually a really difficult question to answer in many ways because our notion of what the family is changes between different societies and changes over time. So what we're talking about is often difficult to define. And at the same time, the, the role of the law within the family is also contested. So the question, what is family law, is actually quite a, a difficult question to answer. And Stripping it down to its essentials, family law is essentially concerned with recognising family relationships and defining the duties and the responsibilities that family members have to each other. And then in protecting family members, particularly when relationships break down or when um, a family member dies or indeed when harm comes from that relationship. How has family law developed in the UK and what are some key forces that have shaped its course? So I think it's probably safe to say that in the UK it started off with the ecclesiastical court, so church-based law relating solely to um, really issues about marriage and very, very limited ways in which you could end a marriage, first of all, with nullity and then it expanded to include divorce. And then as we saw um, probably over the last uh, early 1900s, I think, um, 1800s, it started to change um, its jurisdiction was handed over to the civil courts uh, relating to divorce, matters of nullity and divorce. So you can see it started off as a sort of fairly sort of, well, informed very much by religion. And it, arguably, it still it still is to a certain extent, but not as much um, as it was certainly about 100 years ago. Um, and it's morphed into a much bigger area that, that, that covers not just nullity in marriage, but also children, um, financial relief, uh, domestic violence, uh, child protection, cohabitation, lots and lots of different areas, really. And that that's changed in, 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 in accordance, really, with how definitions of family and what, what, what family means in, in, in modern society today. So family law has developed alongside the notion of family uh, in itself um, over the last hundred or so years. 
of course, law in all areas has to respond to the society that it's in. But I think that's particularly acute within family law because people tend not to plan their relationships and um, think about how they're going to live their personal life with reference to the law. So if the law doesn't keep up with changes in society, then the law becomes easily um, outdated, divorced, if you like, from the reality of the society that it's in. So often what's driving family law is changes in society, changes in technology around, for example, reproductive techniques and so on. And those are what drives family law and family law has to keep up with those. Otherwise, it becomes an irrelevance. I mean, there's lots of forces that led to the, behind the development of family law. Um, you know, you can look at it from a purely sort of theoretical angle, but I think in terms of how family law has expanded and the kind of issues that it deals with has been very much um, one of the forces behind that, I think, is the feminist movement um, and the women's movement. Uh, and that, that's largely, I think, uh, due to grassroots uh, agitation and organisation, really. And you saw that kind of mid uh, 20th century really with starting with the recognition of the kind of abuse that occurs within families and having that then being regulated by law and policy whereas it wasn't but just didn't happen before so you know we have legislation on domestic abuse we have legislation on child protection and in fact children's rights largely as a result of I think uh, fem the feminist movement in family law and that notion of public private divide as well we're seeing increasingly uh, in relation to the impact that the uh, that grassroots organizations had in terms of the agitation on a wider level at the international level for the human rights movement so the concept of women's rights as human rights very much I think is about that public private divide and where family family law is it straddles both actually initially it started off as a, a very much a private matter states didn't intrude in relation to the regulation of families um, but as we see the the, the the impact of the feminist movement we can see actually that um, the state did and should uh, regulate in certain areas of family life. To pick up on something you mentioned, Shazia, I found it interesting that you spoke about how religion continues to inform a lot of family law doctrines today. I think most of us in modern secular societies um, simply assume that this isn't the case. So could you walk us through some of the remnants of religious doctrines that continue to influence or inform family law today? Yes, certainly. As Shazia has mentioned, the, the law on marriage originated in canon law. And what you see in the law today is that over time, that canon law has been adapted and changed for the modern world, but it's never been comprehensively reformed. And so you can still see elements of religious law in the modern law today. And probably a really good example of that would be the law on consummation. If you don't consummate your marriage, then that marriage, um, you can apply for a decree of nullity. Now, that rule comes from canon law, the notion that a man and a woman would be joined together within religious law is still there. Now, it doesn't affect many people's lives. I'm not quite sure how many nullity petitions there are for non-consummation, but that's quite a good example of being able to see the roots of religious law in the law today. And Shazia might want to comment on this, but I think in terms of diversity of religion and religion in the modern law, it's not so much that religious law applies directly to family law, but it's that in trying to be current and trying to respond to the society that we have, the family law has to take into account the fact that there are many different understandings of family and that's partly informed by different religious communities and so family law has to speak to and be relevant to a whole range of different understandings of what the family is. I, I don't know if you want to come in on that Shazia. Yeah so in terms of the recognition of marriages so it's not just recognising Christian marriages it's recognising 
Quaker marriages, Jewish marriages, it's recognising um, Islamic marriages. Um, also, how do we deal with uh, polygamy, which is a big question. Um, so it's kind of tr- the, clearly the, the, the secular the secular viewpoint is clearly you, you recognise one marriage and one marriage alone. And again, that's because of the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition as well that's very much uh, still alive and well in, in English family law. But it's also... Um, trying to understand what the impact that will have on that community and particularly the women who are the second or third or fourth wife in an Islamic uh, marriage. So how do you deal with that? Um, so it's it's also very sort of pragmatic response as well, rather, I think, than a kind of legal response, because obviously the, the secular concepts are important. Um, um, so we see it in that sense. So so one example, one recent, I think fairly recent example of how um, the secular family law has taken into account religious communities has been in relation to the issue of the Jewish get, which is the religious Jewish divorce. How they deal with uh, that issue, it became a real problem because under Jewish, Orthodox Jewish law, um, a Jewish woman cannot apply for a divorce. She has to be given a divorce by the man. And if he isn't willing, then she can't be divorced. Now, the secular system uh, is just not helpful to a woman in that position because the, the the secular civil divorce means nothing to her. She feels within Judaism to be still married. Um, and it became an issue because there were some unscrupulous Jewish men who were using this really as a, as a form of, you know, tying this woman to them forever. And uh, and in some cases, actually extorting money um, in order to uh, in order to give the get. So the Jewish community themselves organised themselves and, and lobbied quite successfully for an act to be brought in, which enabled uh, family judges in the civil courts to delay the last stage of the civil divorce. Uh, until a Jewish get was given by the man in that situation. Now, of course, if somebody is hell-bent on not, um, on refusing to give the get anyway, that that wasn't going to be helpful. But it was helpful uh, in a lot of cases because the secular divorce was still important for the Jewish man to get in the secular world because, obviously, it was a way of um, finalising the financial settlement, for example. So it provided a real incentive in those cases for those type of Jewish men who were refusing a get on uh, fairly spurious grounds to give one to that woman. So that's a, that's a really good example, I think, of how you see the secular uh, system working in a really effective way, probably in response again to some feminist agitation within the Jewish community uh, to solve a real problem, a religious problem, but within using secular means. Another big problem at the moment is in relation to unregistered or the often called unregistered Islamic marriages. Um, you might have heard of the case of Akhtar Khan that was in the Court of Appeal a couple of years ago. But there is a significant problem with women who are marrying in Islamic marriages and are recognised as married within the community but are not legally recognised because the marriage hasn't complied with the requirements of the Marriage Act. Now there's provision within the law that allows Islamic marriages to be recognised in just the same way as marriages from any other religious community but um, if if those formalities aren't complied with then women can find themselves in a very, very difficult position of um, being recognised as married religiously, but not having access to divorce and the kinds of um, remedies that you get on divorce. And this can leave women in a a legal limbo between religious obligations and legal obligations. And it's a problem that I think it's fair to say hasn't yet been solved. I don't know if you would agree with that, Shazia. 
yeah i think it's it is really popular and of course we don't have a pluralistic tradition in the in the way perhaps you know places like in india have which you have very very kind of separate personal laws i think it might be the same in singapore is it not unless i'm wrong um so there are there are examples of different jurisdictions where you know there are sort of you know the the in india for example they've got the muslim marriage act they've got the hindu marriage act the christian marriage act and and then there's a secular act for anybody who doesn't want to fit into those which kind of sort of deals with those sort of issues but we don't we have a very uh, on the first surface a secular act but it's actually very much informed by the judeo-christian tradition actually um so in that sense to answer your initial question you see the remnants of religion very much in family law still and going back to our theme on changing dynamics within family law which both of you touched on earlier one area in which we particularly observe changing dynamics in the state's role is with regard to the institution of marriage Today, we can observe significant benefits that arise uniquely from marital association. So, Rachel, could you walk us through how you would characterize the state's involvement in regulating marital relationships today? That's a, that's a huge question. And one thing I think that's very important when we think about marriage, and within marriage, I'm going to include civil partnership. You probably know that now in the UK, you can choose between a civil partnership and a marriage. And essentially, the law that applies to both is the, is the same. So when I talk about marriage, I'm also including civil partnership. And one of the really crucial things that you get through the state's involvement in marriage is recognition of the relationship. And that can be very important to people. If you look back at the campaign for equal marriage, and the campaign for equal marriage started at a time when civil partnership had already given same-sex couples the same rights, the same practical legal rights as marriage did. But the campaign was concerned with um, the status that the couple had in society, being able to recognise the couple as a married couple, recognise them as equal to other couples was important. And so I think that that element of recognition is important to some people, not to everybody, but the possibility of that recognition is an important state um, role that we might we might value, and in terms of legal recognition uh, and the, and the legal rights and obligations that come to you as a married couple as opposed to a couple who are in a, a non marital relationship, and um, over time those relationships have become closer, but there are still significant differences. And I think we need to distinguish between the way in which the state gives benefits to married couples and the way in which interpersonal obligations are applied within the parties themselves. And so if you look at the way that the state treats couples, there are still benefits, although they're reducing, that come to married couples, for example, through the tax system, through occasionally through the benefit system still, and through immigration. So there are different ways in which the state interacts with couples where being married is beneficial to them. The, the big one that makes a difference to people in terms of interpersonal relationships is that on divorce, there is a discretionary jurisdiction that allows the court to make an award that will... Um, that will change the ownership of assets and may make periodic payments and um, future payments to a spouse. And um, which means that if you have a very traditional relationship in which one person has become very dependent on the other person, there's a remedy for that at the point at which the relationship ends. And that's not available if you're not in a marital relationship. 
Now, whether that matters to you or not, of course, depends on the kind of relationship that you've been in. Perhaps if you've both been working in similar jobs and you've both contributed equally to the home and you're both on the deeds of the home, then that won't be important to you. But for some people, and particularly um, for women, the possibility of having a claim at the end of the relationship is one of the most important things that you can get um, through uh, a marriage relationship. And what would you say are some of the state's historic interests in kind of regulating and, in a sense, also gatekeeping the institution of marriage? In terms of gatekeeping, that's a really interesting word that you use there. I mean, there's this sort of notion and concept of the ideal family, which is all which has always been... Um, uh, an issue particularly for feminists to to consider within family law how much the state supports that concept of the ideal family and the ideal family of course would be a heterosexual uh, married family so in that sense um, yes arguably um, there probably was evidence of, of, of the state um, and, and, and successive governments whether they're from the left or right of the spectrum supporting marriage as an institution uh, and, and doing that via um, uh, policies, uh, 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 as Rachel's just talked about, in terms of tax, etc. I think less so now. What we see, because we've got same-sex marriage, and now we've actually got civil partnerships for both heterosexual and same-sex couples. So I think it's less so now. But yes, I think historically there has been there has been definitely been evidence of uh, a certain type of relationship being um, given preferential treatment in terms of law and policy. And, that, and, that, and that's not just in the UK, that's, that's in, lot, in lots of jurisdictions. And a, a good example of that might be the introduction of the marriage allowance by, I think, David Cameron's Conservative government, introduced in, in order to show the credentials of the government in supporting traditional families, even though it's, not, it's, it's worth a little bit of money, it applies to some families, but it was used as a way of showing that we're trying to support the traditional family, that the right kind of family. Um, and that's quite a good example of the way in which the state will use marriage to construct an ideal. And how would you say the state's involvement in marriage has changed over time? Um, I guess we've been touching on same-sex marriage, so I guess in this case, social forces have forced the state to take a more, I guess, moral position on these issues. But what else do you think motivates these shifts in the state's attitudes? Well, I think in terms of the UK, I think the European Convention on Human Rights has had a huge influence, actually. So this isn't just an accident. It's because um, there's been a consensus that's been building in Europe um, and we see that through successive uh, judgments from the European Court of Human Rights on issues such as uh, same-sex rights, uh, and particularly within family law. Um, so, and, and, and that, that, you know, that's in conjunction with, as you say, lots of agitation from within uh, movements um, that have been trying to um, obtain equal rights for same-sex couples and same-sex relationships. So it all co- kind of coalesced together quite nicely, um, I think. And you know, at that point, I think political parties have to sit up and take notice you know um when when societal attitudes change in that way uh and and you can see that across europe obviously there are still some states that you know haven't got to that point but we we did in the uk fortunately some time ago perhaps the the best recent example of the state's role changing in relation to marriage is actually in relation to divorce so if you look at the history of divorce the state's role was seen originally as a way of gatekeeping morality within the relationship itself. Mm -hmm. And so you could only divorce if you met 
particular criteria originally originally adultery the a husband could uh, could divorce his wife for adultery a woman unfortunately couldn't divorce her husband for adultery alone she also had to show something such as bestiality or incest to add to that so originally the state's role was concerned with gatekeeping morality and if you look at the text of the law as it still applies today then it looks as if you can only divorce for particular reasons that the state's there to scrutinize the reasons that you're giving to divorce um, and this came to a head in a case called Owens and Owens that was heard by the Supreme Court a couple of years ago. Um, and you might have heard of this case. It was a, a couple who had been in a long marriage and uh, Mrs. Owens wanted to divorce Mr. Owens. They were no longer living in the same home. She felt that over time he'd been very concerned with his work rather than her. He'd um, belittled her. He'd embarrassed her in public and so on. And she didn't want to stay in the relationship. And the original judge who heard their case said that this wasn't good enough, that the reasons she'd given were fairly typical of a long relationship and it wasn't sufficient to show that she had um, a good enough reason to meet the legislation. And that case prompted legislative change. You might know that the Divorce Act 2020 is now on the statute book and is probably going to come into force later on in 2021. And what that act will do is remove the state's role from in looking at the reasons that might be given for divorce and instead the parties will simply inform um, the state that their marriage is no longer um, working and, and that the divorce will take place. So the state has moved from regulating and looking at the, the moral reasons to simply recording the fact that the couple have now decided to divorce. And that's quite a good example of the way in which the state has moved from trying to look at the relationship itself to simply regulating the consequences, recognises and recognising the consequences of the relationship breakdown. And then another example of one of the sort of last vestiges of religious law being removed, I think, as well. I'm also aware that the no-fault um, divorce revolution also occurred in the US. So I'm wondering if, as Rachel said, like, was it mainly this case that kind of catapulted this issue? Um, in family law in the UK, or was it also like um, other attitudes across jurisdictions that also resulted in these changes? I think the reality has been that for a long time, and if you look at the legislation as it's written, and you look at the practice in the courts, it's been completely different. So the, the legislation said the state can scrutinise your reasons. The reality was that very, very few, I think um, in the Owens case, they said just 17 cases in the past year have been defended. And if a divorce wasn't defended, so if the other party simply said, yes, I'm, I'm willing to accept this petition, then the state wouldn't make any attempt to look into the reasons that were given and to test whether they were actually proven or not, and whether they were sufficient or not. What was unusual about the Owens case was, first of all, that Mr Owens did defend. So it was one of those tiny number of cases where he did defend the divorce and put Mrs Owens to proof. And then secondly, extremely unusually, it was a case where the judge said that the reasons weren't good enough. I think most family law judges are quite reluctant to involve themselves in assessing questions of morality. But in this case, the judge did. So I think what's happened over time is that whilst the law has remained the same, the, the law dates originally from 1969, the current law that's about to be repealed, and the practice in the courts and the court's role, the court's understanding of their role had changed so the practical reality was we effectively had divorce on, on demand and the Owens case 
demonstrated that that practical reality wasn't universal uh, and prompted the um, the act. And I think in this, in essence, the act takes us to the position that we practically come to before, but now the legislation itself reflects that. I don't know if you'd agree, Shazia. Uh, yes, I think so. Um, but it is also the case that undoubtedly in a number of jurisdictions there are no, no fault provisions, um, not necessarily the states. I mean, I think some of the Commonwealth countries, you know, where it, it, it's been like that for some time, I think the, I argue I think that's been much more influential and is much closer to our own traditions. How have these changes in the state's involvement in marriage impacted family law substantively across the board? Well, I think hugely. So, I mean, for me, I mean, my interest is in human rights. So I I see that quite a lot um, through in terms of a lot of that's driving a lot of changes, um, whether it's explicitly because of decisions by the European Court of Human Rights or it's just an implicit recognition that um, we have to consider uh, more and more uh, whether the state should be involved and ought to be involved in the regulation, particularly of issues such as parenthood, because as we learn you know as more and more things are medically possible the law has to catch up uh, and that's been certainly been the case in relation to um reproduction uh assisted reproduction in particular surrogacy uh, and all those sorts of areas so the state has a role to play and has and has to set, has to step in in terms of the regulation of um you know to, to ensure on one on one level a level playing field really um for, for, for people in those positions who um, you know, for whatever reason, have to uh, have to resort to, to to help in terms of becoming parents, and in terms of, of adoption, certainly child protection. The state definitely has a role to play in that. Rachel, yes, and um, I think your question started thinking about marriage. In in fact, the law's relationship with children has um, has not been impacted by marriage for quite some time. So at one time, whether your parents were married or not, uh, whether you were, to use the the language of the time, a a legitimate child of the relationship was very important. It was particularly important for your relationship with your father and whether that was legally recognised. And from that uh, flowed, flowed the legal obligations that your father in particular owed to you and the rights that he had and your position in society. So at one time, whether your parents were married or not was, was crucial. Um, the, the consequences of being born outside of marriage were removed in the 1970s and, and that's part of an understanding that the state owes obligations to children that shouldn't in any way be affected by decisions as to of their parents from before they were born as to whether or not they would be married or not. So the changes in the law's approach to marriage haven't necessarily affected children to a great extent. There are still some, some rules um, that might affect children in relation to birth registration and so on, but that the substantive relationship between parents and children are separate from the question of whether the parents are married. I'm not sure if that answers your question, Siobhan, which I think originated with marriage. And I also came across an argument that argued that marriage should be abolished as a legal category. Um, and some people argue that, I guess, in a way, co- with the rise of cohabitation and other alternative arrangements, marriage has kind of um, lost its original weight. And some people argue that this actually wouldn't constitute a departure from history, but rather a return to the way in which humanity often viewed and understood marriage and family life. Um, So I wanted to ask what your thoughts on this proposition was. Should marriage as a legal category be eroded, or do you think that marriage should remain a very important um, legal category that the law can continue to improve on? 
Uh, where to start with this one? I mean, I think again. Um, I mean, that's a debate that that's, that that we've seen within feminism as well. So, depending on where, where you are on your feminist viewpoints on marriage, you can regard it as a patriarchal institution which is incapable of reform and requires abolition if we're going to be truly free <laughs> from um, you know the kind of the, the issues with it. Or you can be a feminist who thinks, well, actually, we can work within the uh, existing system to make. Uh, it, to make other institutions equally valuable, which is essentially what we have done, because we have same-sex marriage and we have civil um, civil partnerships being recognised now for for, for all. Um, I mean, on a personal note, I think I think you know, religion, marriage marriage has you know a secular and also a religious value. Um, so I think for those who, particularly for those who uh, have a religious value attached to marriage, I think it's really quite important to carry it on. Um, um, so I, I think for me, I'm personally in favour of a plurality of, of institute you know of, of institutions that are which is basically the system that we have now so everyone has them so so we're not we're not i don't think the answer is to remove choice i think it's to make the choice bigger which is i think where we're going luckily and in, 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 impose our views on what we think people should be doing i think people should be free to decide I would agree with everything Shazia said and as you said earlier family law doesn't work if it doesn't fit with the society in which it operates and so an important point that's been neglected for a very long time in domestic family law is the position of people who don't marry and so there are there is an awful lot to be done in relation to um, people who don't marry a lot of the the legislative reform over the past decade in relation to adult relationships in this country has been concerned with status um, it's been concerned with expanding marriage, it's been concerned with creating civil partnerships. And whilst that's been very helpful for people, we've neglected those who don't marry. At the same time, whilst people do marry, it produces a very efficient and easily provable way to give family law remedies. And so whilst we've got the possibility, whilst people are marrying, whilst people are choosing to do that, then utilising that efficient system to impose remedies, particularly on divorce, I think pragmatically is a useful thing to do. At the same time, we must make sure that we don't neglect those who, who choose not to marry, that we think about the whole plurality of different kinds of ways in which people are living their, their family life. Standing in contrast to the state's preoccupation with marriage is the state's relative neglect in enacting legal protections against domestic violence. Shazia, could you tell us more about what legal protections against domestic violence look like currently in the UK? So the system's really split into two. So the civil, what we call civil protection for domestic abuse and criminal, the criminal law. So the criminal law is the most obvious one, I think, that everyone thinks about when they think about domestic abuse. And those, the protection started off pretty pretty woeful, really, in the sort of 60s and 70s. Attitudes towards domestic abuse in general within the police were not regarded as being particularly good and that kind of translated into how they policed domestic abuse uh, in comparison to um, other type of abusive uh, behaviour. Um, so there's been you know, there's been quite a significant amount of improvement in terms of the training of police officers etc. So the, the fact remains that we still use the same law, the Offences Against Persons Act, you know, which is very old now, um, but we we largely remit, we don't have a criminal offence of domestic abuse not at the moment anyway um, so we have a range of, of offences against the person that we use to um, um, charge 
uh, perpetrators of domestic abuse with. So that's available. The issue has always been implementing, you know, effectively um, implementing those offences against perpetrators and domestic abuse victims, feeling confident that the police will actually listen to them, take them seriously, and charge and deal with defendants uh, in an equally uh, fair manner. And that's that's been the, the, the crux of the issue. But what we have seen over, I think, certainly over the last ten or twenty years, is a real. Um, effort in terms of um, adapting the criminal law. So although we've still got the Offences Against the Persons Act, we've also got new um, innovations such as the DAPOs, as they called domestic abuse protection orders and domestic abuse um, n- uh, notices. Um, and that's really the police being able to take um, emergency action themselves rather than having to go to the court um, to, to basically remove the perpetrator from the scene um, and from a, away from the uh, the victim for a, for a limited amount of time, and then go to court themselves and apply for a, an order for a limited amount of time. So you can see that the criminal the criminal remedies have developed in quite an, an interesting and good way on the whole. However, there are lots of issues that remain in terms of ch- you know cultural change within the police, etc. Uh, and we also see the Crown Prosecution Service um, having made quite a bit of effort, but again, quite a lot of work still to remain. But they at least the, the issue is recognised. So that's the sort of criminal side. Um, and then we have this sort of grey area where it kind of costs over tort. So protection from harassment act. So dealing with stalking offences. Um, so again, uh, criminal slash civil remedies coming in there as well, where you can get an injunction uh, in the civil courts, but you can, it's also a criminal offence as well under the same act to harass and stalk somebody. Uh, and that act is very much in response again to lobbying and agitation by women uh, about the need for this gap in the, in the law really dealing with stalking uh, and, and, and how to deal with that. Um, we've also got a domestic abuse bill which is going through Parliament at the moment which will radically change a lot of this and will actually create a separate domestic abuse uh, offence which is going to be quite radical really. So that's the criminal side. I hope I've forgotten something. And then the civil, uh, the civil side of things is the ability to apply um, for civil protection orders to remove uh, the perpetrator from the family home if he's been living there, um, or indeed to prevent him coming to the home if he hasn't or has been. Uh, and they're called occupation orders. And we also have non-molestation orders where uh, the order is to, for the person to stay away a certain distance from um, the victim. Uh, and that can cover uh, the victim and the children um, as well. And the children can actually make their own applications as well if they if they have sufficient understanding. So kind of very quick rundown of the two sort of remedies that we have, mainly civil and criminal remedies. And we've had some quite interesting innovations in the last uh, few years in relation to sort of the emergency uh, protection side of it, which which is there in the civil courts as well. But because of changes that we've had under legal aid, uh, not for the better. It's become more and more difficult for women to go to the civil courts. And so to a certain extent, we've seen that the police have had to kind of step up really in that gap by um, introducing the um, DAPO orders and the, and the, and the, the domestic abuse uh, protection notices as well. And what was the journey of um, getting to this stage of protection like? Because I'm aware that domestic violence protections are quite a, a recent legal innovation. Um, well... The journey, the journey was quite hard. So we start from a situation, probably I think in the nineteen sixties, where there was just absolutely no legislation on this at all. So again, we still had the same offences against persons. But the point is, it wasn't being used in relation to domestic abuse, and women didn't talk about this in public, and they weren't encouraged to do so. Uh, and in fact, the, the the idea of domestic abuse is very much seen as a private matter, which is what I was referring earlier to the public-private divide. So it, it generally out there in society, it wasn't regarded as something that you would go to the police 
with and if you did the police were generally very unhelpful and felt that this was not something that they should be dealing with this is something it's a private family matter so a lot of cultural change had to take place in order for that legislation then to be brought in uh, and that again was largely down to grassroots organizations feminist organizations saying we need to, we need to deal, deal with this and i think what's interesting about what was going on in the uk was that this is also going on across the world and at the same time you've got the international women's rights movement you've got seed or development which then led to um, CEDAW and lots of other international uh, human rights movements around around women at the same time happening and it was also happening at the domestic and regional level as well so it's a pretty exciting turn of events but it was in response to a real problem um, which is women had nowhere to turn so um, so what came first was protection for women um, brought in by women refuges being set up and then women saying we shouldn't be doing this the state should be doing this and the state should have a role to play which then led to um, legislation which over the years has developed. Um, the last big reform was in 2006 with the Family Law Act. Prior to that, we had a kind of hodgepodge of different bits of legislation, and it was very unsatisfactory. It depended very much which court you went to, you got different remedies, and also which type of relationship you were in, you had to go into certain acts. It was actually quite complicated. Uh, for practitioners as well to to navigate. So the last big reform we had was 2006, where we introduced this, uh, uh, these ideas about the occupation order and the non-molestation order. It was all under one act, uh, and that was pretty substantial. So the next big radical change we're going to have, hopefully, is this domestic abuse bill that's going through Parliament at the moment. So the, the, to answer your question, the process is is ongoing, um, but it started you know, quite a long time ago, but we've still got quite a lot of work to do. In what ways does the law remain inadequate for victims of domestic violence? Uh, from your description earlier about the current law, it seems like it's still primarily centred around physical yeah, domestic violence, like even harassment and stalking is quite physical, but I'm aware it's probably very difficult to regulate psychological or um, economic kinds of violence. Well, the law does recognise those, and it has done. Stalking, for example, is it has recognised as a criminal case, Ireland and Burstow, which you might recall. Um, so it has been recognised for quite some time. Psychological har- harassment is possible, and that was codified really under the Protection from Harassment Act. So coercive control is now recognised. That was a change brought in a few years ago, and as is economic abuse. That so the definition of domestic abuse that we use, although we don't have an offence as such, we do have a working definition that's been given to us in guidance from government, uh, which which is actually a very wide-ranging definition compared to other jurisdictions. So it is recognised, but as you rightly point out, the issue often is is how to evidence it, but also um, for the police and other and, and, and civil courts to also recognise and implement the law properly and not have this kind of hierarchy of abuse and violence, which unfortunately we still do see in relation to um, police action, CPS action, and also to some extent... Uh, judicial interpretation so that those are the kind of main issues that still remain i think so in your view how can legal protections against domestic violence be improved upon well i think a lot of it's about resources at the moment i think i think we're in quite a good position compared to other to other jurisdictions we have some very good laws we've got some very good policies we've definitely got um you know the right sort of training packs you know people higher up in within the cps within the police within the judiciary know what they've got to do I think the issue is kind of carrying on and the effective implementation of, of, of that knowledge that we now have and making sure that it actually happens on the ground for victims. And that's unfortunately where there's quite a lot of work to be done because unfortunately we still hear quite a bit from organisations that work with women and women themselves that they're, they're still not having the experience that they ought to have. And I think one major thing that we could do in the UK is obviously ratify the Istanbul Convention. That would be a start. 
That was Professors Rachel Taylor and Shazia Chowdhury speaking with us on changes in family law. For more interesting legal discussions and writings, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. In the next episode, we'll be speaking with Professor Ariel Ezraki on regulating big tech. Definitely tune in if this topic interests you and we'll see you then.